People always want practical application points, so like, there you go, okay? That's how, that's how you make a, a marriage work. According to this age, you bring the, the merchants into the temple because marriage is an arrangement. You know, this for that, a quid pro quo with boundaries, limitations, and, and negotiations. At least that's kind of what we think, but Scripture has a name for that. And that name is uh, porneia in the Greek. It comes from a verb pernemi, which means to buy and, and sell. It refers to buying and selling love as if love were a, a commodity. It refers to harlotry. But it also gets used pretty much for any sexual uh, communion outside the covenant of marriage. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 32, Jesus talks about lust and marriage, but, but let me mention here at the start that it doesn't only apply to people with active libidos or people that are currently married. It applies to every human heart because every human heart is a temple and every human heart is tempted by porneia and its own epithumia, which is often translated lust. Actually, every child of Eve is married or engage to the Lord of love. So verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, gunaika, translated, um, translated uh, wife in, in the next paragraph, everyone who looks at a, a married woman or a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna, into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away because it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into the Gehenna of fire. And we know that our God is a consuming fire. Next verse. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, Gunaika, his woman, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his, his wife, Gunaika, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, porneia, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Last week, we pointed out that the very first commandment in all of Scripture is basically give your life to another. And the first commandment after the fall, that was before the fall, be fruitful and multiply, give your life to another. The first command after the fall is don't take the life of another. According to Scripture, when two people have sex, they're basically 
married for those two people become they become one flesh in a communion of life what god has brought together let no man tear asunder said jesus so so don't take that life by tearing it in two now i suppose that all of us are a little bit nervous right because you may be wondering have i committed adultery And, and what do I need to cut off in order to avoid the fires of Gehenna? And can I look at the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue or not? Can I look at that or not? It was said that you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment, and God did say that. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But God didn't really say that. He said something similar to that, but, but definitely not that. Later, Jesus points out that God uh, allowed that, but actually never dis desired that. It, through the prophet Micah, he says, God hates divorce. In Scripture, sexual intercourse is profoundly sacred and sacramental. That is, it's a physical act connected to deep spiritual realities that actually take two bodies and produce one flesh, even one psyche. It's profoundly sacred, powerful, sacramental, and, and it must be, it must be absolutely free. Sex is never to be a quid pro quo, but a complete and mutual sacrifice of self. And, and that's why sexual communion is to be protected by a covenant of absolute grace. There's to be no payment, no conditions, no limits, no if about sex in marriage. Marriage creates space for good things to run wild. And while you're stuck in the confines of space and time in these limited bodies of ours, it appears that you can only give your body, give yourself over completely to one other person at a time, only marry one, one person. You know, people often debate, have been debating for two millennia, the details of what God permits and doesn't permit. And I don't entirely know. And so I printed out um, a, a bunch of the pertinent scriptures on a sheet of paper that you can pick up after the service at the entryway. Uh, with It says divorce and remarriage on the top. I, I hope that you would uh, pick them up and judge for yourself. See, I feel utterly unqualified to talk about divorce because my marriage has always been relatively easy. But many of you don't have an easy marriage. Many in the Bible did not have an easy marriage. And so I hope that you would wrestle the word and you would learn um, from Jesus on this. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul seems to make allowances for an unbelieving spouse to separate, but then he says, and the believer, the brother or sister, is not bound. In Luke and Mark, Jesus just seems to say, anyone that divorces and remarries, that's an important part of it, commits adultery. In Mark, he adds, what God has joined together, let no man 
tear asunder. Here in Matthew, he seems to add an exception for porneia. But I think, I think he's making the point that buying and selling love has already torn that marriage apart. But if those people remarry, they just continue to tear, tear apart, commit adultery. It's as if he's saying, even if you divorce for a time, don't remarry. Because no divorce is final, and what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. Well, I, I really don't understand all of that. But I do know that according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the punishment for adultery is death. So at the count of, of three, not before three, but at three, I want you to stand up if you've committed adultery. Or <laughs> ever looked at a woman with lust? And now, let me clarify, that word epithumia, translated lust, is also translated covetousness. So Jesus is not only referencing the seventh commandment, but the tenth, where you're commanded to never covet, quote, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's manservant, maidservant, ox, never covet your neighbor's ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. And ass means donkey, by the way. So you see, it's not necessarily sexual. A lot of men lust for their neighbor's wife's companionship. So I can tell you that a number of affairs have begun in churches because men coveted their neighbor's wife's spiritual or emotional encouragement at Bible study. And since we're enlightened, non-sexist people, this should apply equally to women just as much as to men. Men often lust for pretty bodies. Women often lust for pretty big bank accounts. So, if you've ever been divorced, committed a, a, adultery, desired to have something that belongs to your neighbor, or lusted after a man or a woman, desired a, a man or a, 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 a woman, I want you to stand up at the count of three. One, two, three. Okay, you can just raise your hand if, if you want, okay? All right? Because uh, you're getting used to this. But, but I just want to make a point that we're all in this thing together, right? We all deserve to die, and we all really need a Savior. And we naturally assume that that Savior is more knowledge of good and evil. I know this. I'm a pastor, and people are always asking this of pastors. Pastors, let me know exactly when and when I cannot get a divorce. When can I get a, a divorce? Because I want a divorce. When can I get it? Uh, let me know whether or not I can look at the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue because I really want to look. I want, let me know, can I look at that? And, and what is making me sin? In other words, what do I need to cut off in order that I don't get cast into the fires of Gehenna? When I was a youth pastor, the parents always wanted me to teach the kids how far is too far, what movies can they see and not see, and how to never, ever think about sex. As if we adults all knew the answers to these questions and I just needed to tell the kids. And I tried, but I, I ran into problems. Number one, to be honest, I really don't know how far is too far. Number two, the minute I begin making rules, the, the minute I began making rules like never look at a woman's nipple, I knew every 10th grade boy began thinking about women's nipples. And of course, so, so did I. 
And number three, how to not lust. I wasn't sure what lust was or wasn't. If lust is equated with sexual desire and I'm commanded to never lust, how could I also be commanded to be fruitful and multiply? How could I give life, give seed, producing fruit? I mean, male anatomy just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. Well, it's easy to see why folks read Matthew 5 and think Jesus is saying, all divorce is sin and you must never, ever, ever lust. It's, it's true that Jesus is asking of us something incredibly, incredibly difficult for us, but, but I don't think he's saying that all divorce is sin and you must never, ever lust because God got a divorce and Jesus lusted. Not a little, but a lot. Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. 12 apostles is important, like the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired. In Greek, epithumia, epithumesa, literally translated in lust, I have lusted, literally meaning I've super lusted. Epithumis is translated lust covetousness, and also desire in most English Bibles. And this is what drives me crazy about so many translators. They have to do this, but they pick a word that they think fits the context, and they can't even begin to imagine the context that the word fits because they can't imagine that God is actually good. And he loves the good. He loves being good. And he wants us to be good and love, and love the good. As Jesus is preparing to break the bread and pour the cup, inaugurating the sacrament of communion and the eternal covenant of grace, he says this to the 12 who represent Israel that he had divorced and sent into exile. In lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's worth asking, what makes that lust good and lusting after my neighbor's wife evil? We'll get back to that in a few minutes, but Jesus lusted and God got a divorce. Jeremiah 3.8, I sent Israel away with a decree of divorce, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 50, verse 1, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? God, God divorced Israel and the children of Israel. And, and now if you say, well, then surely I'm justified in my divorce. Surely my divorce should be allowed. Well, maybe so. But first, let me tell you a story. True story. I've been talking to a young man named Josh. For years now, he's been absolutely consumed with this woman. He rescued you, from, he rescued her basically from a, a very a poor and a abusive situation. She, she was absolutely enamored at the time with his wealth and good looks, but also very intimidated and, and reserved. She had a, just a really hard time opening up. But he married her. And her heart began to wonder. For a time, she kept up the facade, but it turns out that she was sneaking out at night and having sex with other men. She renounced her faith, even became a prostitute. 
Josh would walk the streets at night, buy her back from pimps. She gave herself to herself to, to vile men, but she was frigid to Josh. The, cons, the, counselor, the counselor said that she was caught in a cycle of shame. She was dying for lack of intimacy, and yet uh, dying uh, from lack of intimacy, but she would not surrender to her husband's intimacy. She, she would not surrender to her husband's advances. She, she hid her heart in a mountain of fig leaves and shame. At one point, Josh gave her a certificate of divorce, even drove her from his house in the hope that she'd come to the end of herself and turn back to him, but she didn't. And still, Josh wouldn't even look at another woman. He, he divorced her, but he would not marry another. He thought only of her. He dreamt only of her, unbeknownst to her. He would follow her around and, and, and always sought to save her, to redeem her, to help her. Sometimes he'd confront her, but she'd pay pimps and johns to, to beat him. She was an adulterer, a whore, and in the end, she hated love himself. And early one morning, she tried to kill him on a tree in a garden. If anyone ever had reason to give up on love, his name was Josh. He did divorce, but he refused to abandon his bride or give up on his marriage. He would not leave her nor forsake her, and he's the guy speaking on the mount in Matthew chapter 5. Because you know Joshua is the Hebrew. Jesus is the Greek. In English, Jesus and we are his whoring bride. And we did kill him. But even as we took his life, he gave his life, crying out, Father, forgive, and delivering up his spirit. The night before, he had ratified an eternal covenant of marriage by saying, this is my body broken for you. And this is the covenant in my blood. So this is the question. Do you want to be made in his image? Or not? Let me answer for you. Yes, of course you do. And no, of course you do not. In other words, you're a sheep and a goat. You're wheat and, and a tear, like a field of wheat and tares. You're like a grain and chaff. You're a saint and a sinner. You're a new self and an old self. In other words, you believe, but you really need help with your unbelief, just, just like, like me. Every time I marry people, I say, pay attention. You're entering into a covenant with no escape clause, ratified by God. Marriage is God's sneaky way to get a person crucified. And then I also say this. But marriage is also God's sneaky way to give a person a new heart. And then I make it clear. We're all married. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, writes Paul, quoting Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church is all of us, all of us who believe, and one day we believe that all will uh, believe. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Well, that's 
Paul's writing this in Ephesians chapter 5, but already in Ephesians chapter 1, listen to what he wrote. This is the plan for the fullness of time to unite anakephaliososte, bring together under one wounded head all things in him. And then in Ephesians 4, he writes this. There's one body. That's shocking because I look around and I see a whole lot of bodies. But he says there's one body and one spirit. It's all over the New Testament, especially places like 1 Corinthians, you know, where Paul talks about love and, and body parts, and we think it's just a metaphor, but it's not just a metaphor. If anything is a metaphor, it's your, it's your body. Your body is a metaphor to that, as well as sex and love and lust and marriage, even divorce. They're all metaphors referencing a greater reality. We are Christ's body, and we become his body through marriage. I, I, I mean, the two become one flesh, and we all somehow become one body, and what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. So, so what have we learned studying the Sermon on the Mount? Not try harder, but repent, which means get a new mind. Think about this thing differently. Number one, the kingdom of heaven is a hand. Number two, the kingdom is a body. Number three, you're dead until you are connected. Number four, you're connected through a sacrament of communion in the eternal covenant of grace. You see, maybe there really is no such thing as divorce and remarriage. There is only such a thing as marriage. For what God has joined together, no man can tear us under. We're married to Jesus. And in some way, we also must be somehow married to each other. Matthew 20, Mark 12, Luke 20, Jesus says, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Is that because no one will be married or ever get married? or because everyone will be married and none will desire a divorce? Is it because no one will experience a communion in the sacrament of the eternal covenant of marriage, or because everyone will experience communion in the sacrament of the eternal covenant of marriage and love the fact that all good things run wild? Now, if you're tracking with me, you're, you, you should also ask this question. Well, if I'm... If I'm somehow married to everyone in heaven, why couldn't I be married to two or three here on earth? It's interesting that in the Old Testament, some, some kings were married to more than one bride, just as Jesus is married to all of us, his one bride. But from the beginning, it's apparent that although that arrangement may have hinted at another world, it misses the lesson that we are to learn in this world, and that lesson is love. More precisely, the lesson is to learn how to love love. That's learning to lose your life for another, finding it in another, and enjoying it. That's choosing to bleed for another, in freedom. That's learning to desire love. That's learning to covet love. That's learning to lust for love like Jesus, the last Adam. I hope you remember that the first Adam couldn't find his helper. And yet Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God is Adam's helper. Adam means humanity, and God is 
love. So in the beginning, humanity was in the garden of delight with love, but couldn't recognize love. Did not know love. Did not desire love. And God is love. And that's when God said, it's not good that ha-adam, humanity, it's not good that the Adam is alone. He then put the Adam to sleep, cut the Adam in two, making male and female, and began to tell the most amazing story called the gospel. It's the story of our fall and redemption. It's the romance of God. It's the story of all of us who, at the instigation of a snake, took our Lord's life on a tree because we did not know the good. And it's the story of how our Lord gave his life on that tree because he is the good, and he wanted us to know it. So, so let me say that again. It's the story of all of us who at the instigation of the snake took our Lord's life on a tree because we did not know the good. And it's the story of how our Lord gave his life on that tree because he is the good and he wanted us to know it so we would surrender to love and receive his life. He is the life. He's our husband. And we are his bride. He's the ultimate Adam, and we are his, his body, the ultimate Eve. He's been telling the story from beginning to end, from the tree in the garden to the tree on Mount Calvary to the tree in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem, who is us? His body and bride. It's a story of grace, which creates... story of grace, which creates faith. And faith in grace is a desire to love. It's a lust for love. It's the passion of God. So in Luke 22, Jesus sits with the 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel, Yahweh's uh, whoring bride, to whom he had issued a certificate of divorce. He sits with, the, he sits with Yahweh's whore bride, the 12 tribes of Israel. He sits at table with her, and as we learned last year, he proposes marriage. He cuts a covenant and ratifies the eternal covenant of grace, saying, this is my body broken for you. This is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, all of you, Peter and Matthew and Judas and Judah and Israel. Although you will take my life in the morning, I give it to you right now. Although you are utterly faithless to me, I choose to remain faithful to you. Although you broke covenant and handed, and although you, you have broken covenant, I handed you over to faithless lovers that you have chosen. I have also handed myself over with you, in you, for you. Israel, though I divorce you, I will remain faithful to you, die for you, redeem you, and make you love you, me as, as, as I love you. Adam, humanity, I will not trade you for another. I will not abandon you and create another in your place. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I give all of me to you. He's saying, I give all of me to you, no matter 
what you do. It's who I am and who I am making you to be. See, I suspect that in marriage, we're to be bound to one other person in this world that we would learn to give our all to one here in order to give our all to everyone there. In, in the next world, I won't be limited by this old body of death. In the next world, I'll see my Lord in everyone that I meet and give my Lord to everyone I meet. He is all and will be all in all, flowing between all like, like a river. In the next, I'll bleed love for all and receive love from all. God is love, and that dance of love is life, eternal life, a limitless river of, of life. And now let me, let me say, fix this, tuck this in, see if that works. Let me just say that it's probably unwise to talk about sex with preschoolers. And it's probably unwise to speculate about the ecstasies of heaven with immature Christians. Because the devil tempts us all to think about orgies and venereal disease, abuse, shame, insecurity, fear, and just like a mountain of, of fig leaves. But you see, there is this moment in the sacrament of the covenant when giving pleasure to my bride is sincerely, sincerely the, the greatest pleasure that I could receive. And you see, I think that moment is a sacrament. That means it's a sign and it's a symbol of the life divine. And it's more than physical. I'm beginning to realize this the older I get. It's more than physical. It's spiritual. I think God begins with the physical, and over time the physical fails to reveal the spiritual. And in this way, God teaches us the deeper and deeper lessons of of love. I think I've tasted it there, but I'm sure that I've known it in moments of worship. And in one particular moment years ago, when God literally miraculously pinned me to the floor and filled me with fire, in that moment, he revealed to me his love. And get this, I, could, I, I couldn't help but love I thought I was going to die, and I wanted to die because I knew that it was life. It was eternal life. I was a living sacrifice, and this is my point. It didn't hurt. It was absolute ecstatic pleasure. And so just before Jesus broke the bread and poured the cup, he said, with fervent desire, I have desire. In lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Pathane, it's where we get our word passion. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus earnestly desired, in lust he lusted, to eat the meal with them, and that meal was his own body and bloodshed, which was now being served for dinner. Now, Jesus is not a sadist. He doesn't enjoy suffering for suffering's sake. But you see, I think he must enjoy giving for giving's sake. I'm saying he must enjoy love for love's sake. In Acts chapter 20 and 21, at the end of his ministry, Paul is journeying to Jerusalem uh, just like Jesus. Jerusalem is uh, 
Oh, do you want you want to come up here, Mike? So we, I can, because I want you to get this. Okay, you hear me now? What I was saying is he must enjoy love for love's sake. Acts chapter 20 and 21, at the end of his ministry, Paul is journeying to Jerusalem just like Jesus, just like Jesus journeyed. And it's important to remember that Jerusalem is the whore that crucifies the Christ and becomes the bride. Paul is journeying to Jerusalem and he stops to say goodbye to the leaders of the church in Ephesus and then in Caesarea. He tells them that the Spirit has revealed that he's going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, eventually martyred, and they will not see him again in this age. In Caesarea, the believers, they begin to weep and they beg him not to continue on to Jerusalem. And he says this to them, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? To the Ephesians, he says, remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed, makarios, that means it is more happy, it is more to be desired, uh, it's more desirable to give didomai than to lambanen, to take or to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, Acts is the last half of the Gospel of Luke, and, and so this is the last beatitude in all the Gospels. I, I call this like the forgotten beatitude, and I think it sums up all the others, and it explains why Jesus is so weird. Blessed, happy are the givers, and sad are the takers. You see, I think he actually believed that, and none of us do. At least not yet, or at least not all the way. So last week we said the height of human anger is taking life from another, but the height of God's anger is giving his life to another on a tree in a garden. Thumos is translated passion or anger. Epithumos is translated lust or desire. So get this, the height of human lust is taking life from another. You know what we call that? rape. But the height of divine desire is giving life to another on a tree in a garden. It's love without limits. It's love with no porneia. It's absolute, unadulterated, and limited, limitless, limitless grace. You, you may remember in the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea is commanded to marry a, a harlot and then divorce her when she becomes unfaithful, then buy her back from her pimps and then marry her once again so that Hosea would know what it feels like for God to be wed to, to Israel, for God to love Israel, so that Hosea would learn and begin to understand the heart of God, who is Joshua, or in English, Jesus our Lord. In Hosea 6-7, Hosea prophesies saying this, at Adam or in Adam, or like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And, and that's why I keep showing you this picture. 
I want you to start making some connections that I think we, the bride, the church, have just forgotten. Jesus is the eschatos, the last, the ultimate Adam, and we, humanity, are his bride. We've all been to this tree. We all know this tree because it grows in the sanctuary garden of our heart, and now we all come to this tree when we come to communion. Have you ever noticed how the most vile and evil deed can be the very same deed as the most sacred and blissful deed? Except for the intentions of the people that commit the deed. In other words, sex can be rape producing death or communion that is life. The only difference is the intentions of the hearts of the people that commit the deed. This sacrament can be drinking judgment upon yourself like we saw last week when we talked about Dracula. This sacrament can be drinking judgment on yourself or it can impregnate you with eternal life. Maybe everything you do can be rape or love evil or good, taking life or giving life, sin or righteousness, and it all depends on the intentions of the heart. If we think that love is a law, a dead law, if we think that the love is a law that we must fulfill, we will we'll lust for the knowledge of good and evil. Why? So that we can know how much we can sin and still get into heaven. How much we can take and and still not have to, to give. How much we can wound love and still get his stuff, his kingdom. If we think love is a law, we'll crucify love and use love the way harlots use love to gain things that are not love. If we think love is a law, we'll try to take his life and consume it like food, like zombies, lust for body broken, and vampires for blood shed. But when we see that love is the life who longs to fill us with himself, I think we'll begin to desire his life, surrender to his life, and bear the fruit of his spirit. We'll desire him like a faithful bride desires communion with her groom, the joy of complete and total, uninhibited and mutual sacrifice and surrender. In other words, when we see Jesus, the grace of God, Jesus Christ and him crucified, our Lord, we'll begin to love as we've been loved. And so I just want to say this. I really don't know exactly what God is telling my homosexual friends. I'm learning that those verses are more nuanced than I I once thought. And I really don't know what God is telling my friends in broken marriages about divorce and whether or not they can remarry. And I really do not know the point at which your sexual desire becomes unrighteous lust. But I do know that if you surrender to love, and in this is love, if you surrender to love, you will love, and that love will fulfill the entire law.
And let me also say this. I really haven't been tempted with homosexual desires. So I just don't want to give much advice in that department. And I really honestly have never been tempted to file for a divorce, and so I don't feel qualified to judge. However, I sure have been tempted to lust after women other than my own beautiful bride, and that's adultery. Committed in my heart. The very worst place to commit it. I'll tell you what. I've found that rules, making rules, don't, that doesn't really help. Vows doesn't really help. But love helps. And you see, love is not a law. Love is a person. And when I begin to talk to that person wherever I am, when I begin to see him wherever I am, when I talk to him wherever I am, I begin to love love. I mean, I don't want to take from others. I want to give to others. I don't, and I don't panic thinking, you know, I have to have. I'm 58 and I, I have to have. I don't think I have to have. I begin to trust that all things are mine and I am Christ and Christ is, is God's. I, I change the channel because I have a new heart. You may have noticed that Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, because that's better than being thrown into the Gehenna of fire with it. If your right hand causes you to sin, better to cut it off and throw it away than to be thrown into the hell of fire with it. And you see, that is absolutely true. But it's not your eye or your hand that causes you to sin. It's your heart. Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, porneia, the thought that you could buy and sell love. I am love, says God. You need heart surgery. I don't think you can do that yourself. Moses prophesied that one day God would circumcise our hearts. Now, there's a picture you can think about for a long time. One day God would circumcise uh, our hearts. The, the thing that needs to be cut away is the hardness around your heart that keeps you from the joy of love without limits. Relentless love. You need a new heart, and this is where you get it. Jesus is the heart of God given to you like fruit on a tree. You have tried to take it, and he has always forgiven it. He is the knowledge of the good. He is the good, and he is the life. He is love. So this is the good in flesh. This is the life. And on the night he was betrayed, paradidomai, the night he was given up, he didomai, <laughs> he gave himself. Because he wanted to. <laughs> I don't know about you, but for me, that's a new desire. 
He took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. So would you pray with me? And just try to make these words your words. I'll pray for me, and, and hopefully you can agree with me. Jesus, um, I'm just so grateful that you said it is more blessed to give than to receive, and you did not say it should be more blessed to give than receive. You said it is more blessed to give than receive. And your reality. So God, I think what we need to do, what you're asking us to do, is to confess that we live in some kind of illusion. We live in like non-reality. because I don't think any of us really fully, entirely believes that it's better to give than receive. So, Lord God, right now, we confess our faithlessness to you. We confess our broken relationships to you. We confess our desire to take more than give. We confess our faithlessness to you and we invite the faithfulness that comes from you. Lord, with a little bit of faith we have, we say, would you make us faithful like you? Lord Jesus, would you help us to lust for love like you? Would you cause us to live in your kingdom that is in ha at hand. <laughs> we need that new heart. And we thank you that, Father in heaven, you give it to us in Jesus. Amen. My uh, wonderful bride taped these words to the refrigerator from C.S. Lewis. He, he, he wrote... Um, what lies ahead is far, far better than anything you leave behind. <laughs> and what is it that we leave behind? Well, a lot of broken relationships, a lot of unfulfilled desires, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, some, some wonderful moments when we tasted something and yet then it vanished. What lies ahead is far, far better than anything that you leave behind, and yet this is wonderful news. God is using all that you leave behind to create in you a desire for love, uh, a lust for love. And all that you leave behind, he makes new by filling it with that new desire. 
and, and this is, I think, incredibly news, and that is that in the kingdom of God, that means no one is repressed. Because why do we have limits and laws and boundaries and, and rules? Well, it's because we all kind of want to eat each other, devour each other, suck the life out of each other. But God is giving us a new heart. And so I hope that you receive this message as a message of incredible hope, such that you would entrust yourself to God and submit to the surgery right now um, rather than later. I guess I'm, everything I'm saying is that God is good. So believe the gospel and begin to live um, even now. Amen? Hey, let me just say this one last thing. Um, I wrote this book a couple years ago, and hardly anybody's read it. Um, and it's funny, because on Amazon, there are like a bunch of, uh, there are uh, comments, you know, and the other book that was on there, first one of Genesis, a lot of great comments. This one, like two or three, and almost all of them said, well, I almost didn't buy it because of the title. Um, and the title is God and His Sexy Body. So we're going to retitle this and just call it God and His Body, The Romance of uh, Jesus and His Bride, because I really want people to read it and not be um, afraid of it. You see, the gospel is such incredibly good news, and I don't think that we believe it. So this morning, I talked about a bunch of things that really are new concepts for a lot of people, even though they're very old concepts in the history of our faith. So I would encourage you to get this, and um, we have some out in the entryway. They cost the church five bucks, and, and uh, all the money made from the books just go back to, to the church. So you can either get it on Amazon or, or, or down there. But gosh, you should get a copy of this limited edition that's about to go out of print <laughs> before, before the kosher one uh, goes on sale. Okay, so there you go. Have a great week. Um, and uh, I'll see you next week. Amen.